Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Hasn't God been good to all of us? Hasn't He been better than we deserve? Can we say amen? You know, it's sad, but it's true that most of us never understand the immeasurable gift of grace that God has given us until we are keenly aware that we need it. Isn't that right? We find ourselves in a situation where we've done something that we regret and we find ourselves humbled before the Lord and we don't really see the value of the grace until we need it real bad. People of God, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, good or evil, we are all in great need of God's grace, His unmerited favor. May we lift our voices in thanks to God today for it with a resounding thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. David lifted his voice in Psalm 147 and he said, Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He granteth together the out, he gathers together the outcasts of Israel and he heals the broken in heart and he binds up their wounds. He tells the number of the stars and he calls them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifteth up the meek and he cast the wicked to the ground. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our Lord our God. Who covereth the heaven with clouds. Who prepares rain for the earth and makes the grass to grow upon the mountains. He gives the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. He delights not in the strength of the horse and he takes not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear Him and in those that hope in His mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise thy God, O Zion, for He hath strengthened the bars of thy gates and hath blessed thy children within thee. He maketh peace in thy borders and He fills thee with the finest of wheat. He sends forth His commandment upon the earth and His word runneth very swiftly. He giveth snow like wool and He scatters, scatters the hoarfrost like ashes. And he casteth forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before the cold that God sends? He sends out his word and he melts them. And he causes the wind to blow and waters flow. He shows his word unto Jacob and his statutes and judgments to Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. As for thy judgments, they have not known them. Praise 
ye the Lord. Everybody say, praise ye the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you today so excited that you have invited us in. Lord, you could have not done that and we could be outside the gates today. We could be sitting at home or we could be wallowing in our own uh, sin today, but we're here in your house. Lord, we come before you as hungry children knowing that you will feed us. We come as needy servants needing your forgiveness We pray, O God, that you would change us, that your presence would transform us, that by your spirit, Lord, you would make us holy because we want to be holy like you. Lord, we come today wanting to hear your word speak to us as one who longs to hear the words of those they love. Speak to us today. Speak to us today and your people will hear you. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said... Amen. Amen. Please remain standing for just a few more moments as I read my text for you today. From Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 through 10. I almost wish we could read this verse every time we got together. Maybe we'll include it in our liturgy. Because it is uh, at the very core of everything that we believe in this church. Ephesians chapter 2, starting off in verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Everybody say, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Let us pray. Lord God, we are glad that we can boast in you today and not in ourselves. Lord, any of us here who know ourselves even a little know that there is nothing good in us, that the good that comes in us is all a gift of your spirit, of your grace, of your faith that you have given us, O God. And Lord, we look to you, thankful, Lord, that you looked upon us in our need, in our darkness, in our death, and that you had mercy upon us, O Lord, for your mercies are new to us every morning. In Christ's name we pray, and all the church said, Amen. You may be seated. Late have I loved thee, O Lord, and behold, thou wast within, and I without. And there I sought thee. Thou wast with me when I was not with thee. And thou didst call and cry and burst my deafness. Thou didst gleam and glow and dispel my blindness. Thou didst touch me and I burned for thy peace. For thyself thou hast made us and restless our hearts until in thee they find their ease. Late have I loved thee, thou beauty ever old and ever new. You know, winsome words like these do not come from the hearts of those who do not comprehend the work of God in their own lives. I don't know if you were getting settled in your seats and maybe you weren't listening to these beautiful words, but when I read for the first time this quote by St. Augustine, For thyself thou hast made us, and restless our hearts, until they find their ease in us. 
my heart was deeply touched at the very thought of understanding this, knowing that I was made for God. And until I find peace with God, there is no peace at all. You see, these words came from a man who, not unlike the prodigal son, wasted precious years of his life in riotous living. A man who, by his own account, broke his pious mother's heart and offended God's law daily in the flower of his youth. But this man, after so poor a start, was able to build a life on the unchangeable rock of God's grace and goodness and not on the sand of man-made righteousness. For this reason, he became a pillar. Everybody say, a pillar. And people talk about so-and-so being the pillar of the community. There is no doubt among Christendom, whether it's the Catholic Church or whether it's the Protestant Church or whoever you are in the faith, there is no doubt that this one man, this faulted, flawed, sinful man, became a pillar in the church. And without what he has done, uh, so many would be helpless and hopeless. Of course, God could have made another man that pillar. For this reason, he became a pillar of the church for all ages. Not just in his life and in his church and the work that he did, but he built something that would last for a long time. The Bible tells us we need to be careful how we build. That we need to build with things that will last. What we're hoping to do at Foundation Church is not just have a good church and have a good life and and raise some nice children. But what we're hoping to do is build something that can be built upon. Can we say thanks be to God? We want to build something that will last, that we can uh, be a part of so that in eternity we can say we were there. And God used us for this work in His kingdom. In the time of the Great Reformation, when good men were looking through the debris of the church in ruin for solid bones to build on, they rediscovered St. Augustine. You can hardly read about uh, the, the day star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe or William Tyndale, who brought us the Bible in the English language without hearing how they were instructed by Augustine. Again, as you learn about Jacques Lefebvre de Staples, the famed Roman Catholic priest who taught William Farrell and many other reformers at the University of Paris, and the very man who would give the French their own Bible in their own language, who influenced the likes of John Calvin. You can't hear about men like that without hearing the echoes of Augustine's deep admiration of the beauty and the depths of God's grace. Even Martin Luther himself, who many credit for starting the Reformation, was a friend of Jacques Lefebvre. He was himself. Martin Luther was a monk. Do you guys know what kind of monk he was? Everybody say he was an Augustinian monk. An Augustinian monk. Say Augustinian monk. What does that mean? That meant the order of his entire priesthood was built upon the teachings of Augustine. And so the man that boldly nailed the 95 Thesis to the church door to open the discussion that started it, his life and it was taught and it was shaped by the teachings of this man, this pillar of the church, Augustine. Of course, it was the word of God that tied all of these heroes of faith together, but they all had Augustine as their teacher too. You see, it was the doctrine that we call Pelagianism that had sorely afflicted the church and brought her into the filth of her own self-righteousness and then led her into lasciviousness. Someone said, uh, it was, it was, I think it was in church last week, someone was quoting this. They said, you know, people rail and rail and rail on, uh, on Calvinists 
because they say that Calvinism will produce uh, sinfulness because we trust that we're already saved. And, and it says that, that Pelagianism, which says that a man can be saved by his work, it, it should cause great righteousness to abound. But haven't we found the opposite to be true? The most pious and godly men that have ever lived have been Calvinists who believe they're already saved and they don't need to do anything good to be saved. And the most ungodly and lascivious and godless Christians that we've ever met have been those that adopt the doctrine of Pelagianism. You see, the doctrine of Pelagianism says a man is not born with original sin. And that a man could, by his own power and his own effort, secure his salvation by his good works. You would think, Andy, that a doctrine like that would produce some of the most righteous people on earth. But instead, it has produced the opposite. This doctrine, as I said, denies original sin. For every Christian, there are but two paths. Now, if I was going to pass on something to young people, I'm telling you, I would pass this on to all of you today. I hope you're listening. I hope my children are listening. There are two paths. Everybody say two paths. There are but two paths for every believer. And they, they go like this. And I've seen this in my life. I have witnessed this. I've watched it. This week I was watching it. My heart was breaking uh, for some living like this. Knowing that they're, uh, they're lost but they don't even know it. There are two paths. One path begins with righteous living. Where we miss our need for God's grace. Uh, and there's another one that finds us running toward the pig pen. Now, if I were going to pick which one that my children would be on, I would say I want them to be on the righteous path. But the problem with with our children starting out life on the righteous path is that oftentimes they continue on their righteous path and they just keep going. Not understanding that our righteousness cannot please God. Now, I want my children to love God. I want them to hate sin. I don't want them to give provision to the flesh. But what self made righteousness does is more repugnant to God than what the filth of sin does. And you might go, that's not true. It is true. You'll find it over, over, over again in scripture. Jesus didn't go out and, and, and swing open the curtains of the brothel and go shame on you people inside of here living ungodly lives. Do we ever read about it once? Everybody say, we never read about that. Ever in the Bible, ever one time. But what we do see is that he goes to the temples, to the people in the nice outfits, and the people who did it all right, and the people that looked good, and he says to them, you are vipers, you are whited sepulchers, you are twofold children of hell. It doesn't say that our sin disgusts God as much as it says that our righteousness is filthy rags before him and the two paths go like this we live a good life and never come to the knowledge of our need for god's grace and so then we live our lives based on the fact that we think we deserve it and we come to god and if we come to heaven and if you try to go to heaven one day and you think salvation comes because you went to this church because you were part of a family in this church and because you didn't do x y and z You'll be sorely disappointed because you were born in sin. You were shaped in iniquity. Your heart is deceitful and your heart will deceive you that your righteousness can give you access to God and it cannot. And the other one is a one where, you know, Jesus said, I've not come to save the righteous, but what? But sinners. He, he was saying that because we're all what? We're all sinners. You see, when we live that righteous life, we, be, we can be deceived that somehow it is the wrong kind of righteousness. The other path leads to sin. And, and how many people meet someone and when you witness to them, they, you don't need to convince them they need to get right with God. They know. 
They're covered in filth and sin and they know their life has brought misery and pain on them. And you don't have to talk them into the fact that they need saved. They're there with their arms open. Save me, God. And they're there because their path has led them to the pen. Their life, I wrote here, the filth of the world hangs about them like a stench, always filling their nostrils with the knowledge of their need. Many a man and woman have gone down this road and lived for years believing God is pleased with them, that they are deserving of His blessing, that they are not in need of God's grace. But God says, although in this state we feel clean, we are not justified, our good deeds are nothing to God. Until we understand this in ourselves, we become like the man in Luke 18. Can you, can you guys hear me just for a minute? Listen to this. Jesus spoke of this man in Luke 18, and he should be a reminder to all of us today. He said, this Pharisee stood and he prayed uh, thus within himself, Oh God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. For other men are extortioners, they're unjust, they're adulterers, even as this man. And he was pointing over to another man who was praying. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And this publican standing afar off would not even so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven. But he smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What do you think? Did Jesus say, oh, that Pharisee was really lying. He really didn't tithe and he really didn't fast. And he really did all these things. Absolutely, it does not say that. There's no denying. In fact, Jesus said all the things that the Pharisees do and do more. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The publican did rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased. And he that humble himself shall be exalted pelagianism is a foul doctrine which came to the church with a man by the name of pelagius in the early 400s at the time when augustine lived in his time uh augustine fought against this heresy and some of the beauty that uh, augustine made within the church was as a result you know sometimes god does this he brings something against us which causes something beautiful to come out of us, you know? He puts us in the refiner's fire. And here was Augustine who had lived the life in sin, and we'll get into that life. And here he was, he, he would hear Pelagius talk, and he would just think to himself, not me, not me. I couldn't be saved that way. I need God in my life. I need His Spirit in me. There's nothing good inside of me. And the more that this man preached this doctrine of self-righteousness, the fire of God's indignation uh, rose up and purified even Augustine. And he began to put out a beautiful, beautiful, uh, uh, great works in writing that changed the church. This man with a gentle Christian mother named Monica and a pagan father... A man really essentially with no godly father. This man became the church father most notable for making plain the doctrines of grace. Did you hear that? This man without a father. This man without a godly father to lead him became the father. The church father who more keenly and plainly defined the doctrines of grace than any other man that lived. Doesn't this give some of you hope today? Maybe your fathers haven't led you in a righteous way, but it doesn't matter because he found God as his father. There is no better vessel to bring the doctrines of grace than one who finds himself in such need of them himself. 
St. Augustine was born. And of course, when he was born, he wasn't born and they didn't call him a saint then. He was just a little boy named Augustine, kind of like Big Val down there. Valiant Augustine. Everybody say Valiant Augustine. Right now, he's a little boy, and I could, I could just name off his sins and his temptations and his weaknesses because he's got plenty of them. But by faith, I believe that this little smiling boy on the front row, by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, will remember those days, and we will see God work in his life, and we'll see God do great things in his life. And he'll say, how did it happen? I don't know how it happened. I didn't, it didn't come from my genetics. It didn't come from anything that was in me. God filled me with his spirit. Big vow, I'm believing that for you today. Augustine was born in the North African city of Hippo. Vow, he's from a place just like where you're from, where your genetics are from. And I mean, if you were from a town and it was called Hippo, you probably would not wonder what country it was in, right? You know? I mean, we don't find hippos in America, do we? Or we don't find them anywhere out in China. You know, if you want to find a hippo, you got to go to Africa. So Augustine was born in North Africa in a, in a, a place called Hippo in 354. Everybody say 354. He was born in November on the 13th. And uh, they also call him Augustine of Hippo. It's in a country that is today called Algeria. And you might not think of Africa as the seat of Christian dogma, but if you remember last week, where was Athanasius from? He was from He was from Alexandria, okay, which is north where? What continent? North. Everybody say Africa. North Africa. Did you guys not hear were you not here last week? Did you guys miss it? St. Augustine and Athanasius both come from Africa, the continent of Africa. Um you might remember that the, in, very early in the church history, it recorded in Acts chapter 8 that one of the men that had been ordained to work with the widows in Acts chapter 6 was named Philip. And then when Philip, when the church was scattered, Philip went to Samaria. Do you remember this? And there they were preaching the word and people were being converted. And he comes across a man. Do you guys remember what the man was? He was an Ethiopian eunuch. What continent was he from? Everybody say, he's from Africa. So early on in the book of Acts, right at the beginning, Philip encounters an African man. He was a eunuch from uh, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He worked for her. He was a finance guy who worked for uh, the queen there. And so he is converted by Philip and he takes his faith back. And the country remembers that story to this day. Uh, Andrew and I were watching a documentary, I think it was like midnight a few nights ago, about how the, those people, they get out in the streets every year and they have these umbrellas and, and they have replicas of the Ark of the Covenant and they go through the street remembering the beginnings of their faith of Christianity in the country of Ethiopia. And so we know that Mark went there and Philip went there and even uh, the disciple and apostle Simon and all of them were martyred in Africa. But... A few hundred years later, the church uh, had become very robust and it was uh, controlled by the Roman Empire and uh, great men of God came from there. And among them, of course, is Augustine of Hippo. His mother, Monica, was a devout Christian and his father, who was named Patriarchus, uh, was a pagan who eventually did convert to Christianity, but he did so on his deathbed. Uh, the area, as I said, was ruled by the Roman Empire. The family was heavily Romanized, and this family spoke only Latin in their home. And, and at the time in his life, Latin was an incredible language for the church because they had uh, the, the, the Word of God was in Latin, and it was what they used in the churches of the time. At the age of 11, Augustine was sent to school. 
And uh, he learned Latin literature as well as pagan beliefs and practices. And his first insight into the nature of sin occurred when a number of his friends did something very simple that you might find yourself doing. They stole some fruit from, uh, you know, where they didn't belong to them. They were, there was a uh, guy had a garden and, you know, he saw his fruit there and he wasn't poor. He had plenty of that at home, but he just liked the idea that he could take it, you know. And here's what he says in his autobiography, which is called Confessions. If you're looking for something good to read, Confessions is a book that is written. It's 20,000 words. It is, a, it is his prayer. You know, Paul, you talked about how long it takes you to write a prayer. Could you imagine if you wrote a 20,000 word prayer, how long it would be, right? And so it's a 20,000 word prayer to God about how God saved him. And if you want some insight into this guy's life, read that book. And as you do, uh, Steve, if you haven't read it, your heart will just start burning in you and you'll go, oh, I love this guy. Oh, he loves God like I do. Oh, I want to know him. So in this book, he wrote this. He said, he said, um, he didn't steal the fruit because he was hungry, but because, quote, it wasn't allowed to be done. That's why I did it, he said. He said, it was foul and I loved it. He said, I love my own error. Not, not, I didn't love the, you know, I didn't love the fruit so much, but I really just loved doing something I knew was wrong. He said, this began in him the understanding that he was born in sin. He's like, why would I love to steal something of somebody's just because I know it's wrong? And this began to work on his mind. At the age of 17, through the generosity of a friend of his, he went to Carthage to continue his education. And he began to study Latin rhetoric. It was while he was there and a student at Carthage that he read Cicero's dialogue, uh, which we don't even have anymore, but he refers to it quite a lot. In fact, a lot that they know about Cicero's dialogue comes from what Augustine wrote about it, because it's gone. No one, no one has it anymore. But he described it as leaving a lasting impression, and it sparked his... Uh, his love for philosophy. Folks, I have found that books, as much as I am not uh, your typical normal reader, I have found again and again that people that have changed the world are people that read books. If you don't read books, if you don't have books around for your kids, or maybe you're not a reader, like I'm kind of not like that myself. But I have read, and when I do read, every time I read, I find that people's lives were changed by books that they read. That's why I'm going to try to write some books. Why? Because I want to help change some lives. And if that means I've got to do the hard work of writing it down, I'm going to do it. But it, that's what got him going and thinking about philosophy. Although he was raised a Christian, Augustine left the church to follow this strange religion called uh, Manichaeism. Uh, and, this, and, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's M-A-N-I-C-H-A-E-A-N, if you can spell that, Manichaean. Uh, and his mother, it, she despaired. I mean, imagine, you know, Becky, imagine raising your children to know the Lord. And, and all of a sudden Jacob comes back and he goes, you know, at FedEx, they gave me this really good book uh, about Hare Krishna. And I'm going to be one of those. I mean, could you imagine that? Wouldn't it just crush you? I mean, and so his, he comes home and he's like, yeah, mother, that whole Christianity stuff. I'm not into all that. Uh, I think I'm going to follow this religion. And his mother was just heartbroken over it. Now his father, the pagan, he could care less. Yeah, whatever. You know, kids get interested in things, no big deal. But his mother's heart was broke. Because of this and because of this religion, uh, he began to live a hedonistic lifestyle. And I won't get into all of it. There are some details about his sinfulness, but he became a lover of pleasure. And so he sought after things that he liked, things that made him feel good. And the more he did them, the more he liked them. And he became a very ungodly, uh, he would be very much like the prodigal son who wasted his life and, and uh, you know, running after women and 
and drinking and carrying on and all manner of things that I hope none of you ever do. But that's what he did. It, it was during this time period that he uttered this prayer, kind of looking back at his Christianity in a mocking way. And he said, oh Lord, grant me chastity and grant me continence, but not yet. You know, he's like, he's like kind of laughing and mocking at God as, as a teenage boy. He was aware enough that what he did was wrong, but he wanted to continue in it. He loved his sin. You see, people of God understand this. You can learn how not to to get in trouble and how not to sin. You can put walls around your life, but that's not holiness. Holiness is when God changes your heart and that sin becomes loathsome to you and you hate it. Okay? Sanctification is not... You know, building a fence to keep you inside so that you don't do anything wrong. You'll just be in your fence and you'll be rotten to the core. You know, God wants to set us free and He wants to change us at the core. And that's what sanctification is. About the age of 19, Augustine began an affair with a woman in Carthage. And uh, this woman, he lived with this woman. He didn't marry this woman. And he fathered a child with this woman. Can you imagine his mother's heart? I'm imagining it, this woman who prays, oh dear God, save my son. And now he's living with a woman and now the woman has a baby and he still doesn't marry her and he's running around and he's living this ungodly life. Can you even picture this? Women, mothers, here, can you picture this about your own son? I don't even want your mind to go there, but picture it. And no, this, what he was doing was crushing his mother. He lived with this woman for 15 years. Can't you imagine even wanting to give up at this point? He's never going to serve the Lord. He's never going to do what's right. He, he gave birth to a son and he even, I think it even appears to be there was some mocking even in his name because God is in the middle of his name. Deo, a Deo Deitas was his son. In 385, though, after 15 years of living with this woman, his mother says, hey, uh, I've got this good Christian girl and, and they had arranged marriages and, and maybe you can marry her. And she was, actually, she was only 11 years old, okay? And she was an heiress of a, of a, uh, of a good house and, and they had to wait a few years, obviously, till she got old enough to be married. But they said, if you're going to marry this girl, you got to at least straighten up. And so he uh, ended his relationship with this woman. And by the time, though, he was able to marry her, God had begun to work on his heart and he decided that what he needed to do was turn away completely from everything, all the pleasures of the flesh that he could and he wanted to live a life celibate uh, and he wanted to, to, to dedicate it to God but he's not quite there at this time. Now Augustine was from the very beginning in school a brilliant student. You know, people are proud of how their children, how smart they are. I don't think his mother was proud of how smart he was. I think his mother was just wanting him to change. She was probably glad he could do something useful. But uh, what we hope for our children is that they, they love God. Amen? And so he was brilliant. He was eager. And God used this, uh, this as a way of leading him back into the fold. Uh, he never mastered Greek, but he was incredible at Latin. And in fact, he talked about his Greek teacher who would beat him. Uh, and, and so he just hated Greek as a result of it. But by the time he realized he needed to know Greek, though, uh, to study the scriptures better, uh, it was too late. He was too old. And so he never became eloquent in it. However, his mastery of Latin was another matter. He became an expert both in the eloquent use of language 
and in the use of clever arguments to make his point. Augustine, uh, at this point, moves to, uh, to Carthage to conduct a school of rhetoric, and he would live there for the next nine years. And uh, his students were mean to him, and it, he had a rough time uh, while he was there. Now, he loved, though, to argue. In fact, he got a job uh, as one of the most honored jobs in, in the Roman world at that time in the city of Milan. And uh, he was good at debate and rhetoric and all this stuff. But someone told him, they said, you know, you're really good and you've got the highest position, but there's a man who's the best in the whole wide world. The problem is, though, he's an old fuddy-duddy, he's one of these Christians, and he's, he's, he's a bishop. Uh, but he's like, oh, I want to go hear him. I don't care what he argues about. If he's really good at it, he knows what he's doing, I want to go listen. And so he goes to meet a guy named Ambrose. Everybody say Ambrose. And so he goes just to hear him, okay? Uh, when he goes to Milan, it said uh, in, eight, in uh, AD 30, 384, 30 years old, He'd won the most visible academic position in the world at the time. Um, he, he then, as he began to think through this Latin rhetoric and logic, he began to realize that the faith, this pagan religion that he had kind of grabbed onto, that it didn't make any logical sense. And so he abandoned it just by sheer logic. No heart change. Just, this is dumb. Like, I'm smart enough and I've learned enough to do an argument where if you argue all the way back, this doesn't make any sense. It's stupid, you know? And so... Uh, he goes, so uh, someone takes him and they say, you know, you should study Neoplatonism and uh, whatever. And so he begins studying all these things. He's trying to find something that makes sense. So when he meets uh, Ambrose, as I told you, he was a master of rhetoric, but he was an older man and more experienced. And more importantly, he was a man of God. Okay. So even though he was good at something, he loved people more than he loved the thing he was good at. Okay. And so, of course, he was good, and people would come to hear him. Uh, but Augustine visited Ambrose in order to see if he was really one of the greatest speakers. Um, Confession says he was more interested in his speaking skills than the topic of his speech. But the topic of the speech started to work its way, Jonathan, into him. He started going, his arguments about Christianity and about faith, they can't be beaten. And he's listening to them, and he's just... He's mesmerized by this man's ability, but what he's sharing from God's word is getting into and infecting him. He discovered that Ambrose was not just an orator, but that he was a man of God. It was not long after this that Ambrose did not try to make uh, Augustine a Christian, but he said, oh, if you want to learn rhetoric, come and be around me and, and we'll spend some time together. What do you think was on Ambrose's mind, guys? You think it was making the guy better at rhetoric, or do you think he was using the gift that he had to make a disciple? And that's what he did. It says here in Confessions that this man of God received me as a father, and he loved me. And and to me, he was a friend before he was ever my teacher. He welcomed my coming as any good bishop should. Folks, do not undervalue what God can do through a man who is willing to take a younger man and love him and guide him. There is a gentle way of doing that that, that does not come from pride and it does not come you know, from looking down at someone, but loving them where they are and bringing them to a different place. And that's what Ambrose did. And soon the relationship between Augustine and the wise and gentle Ambrose grew. And Augustine wrote this. He said, I began to love him. 
you know, people discount this friendship and this love as just not that big of a deal sometimes. But folks, love is our most incredible weapon. When someone knows that you love them, their heart opens up to things they would never open up to before. When you, can, when you tell everyone the right way to do it and you show them the right way to do it, it closes off walls. But when you love them, and you're not trying to change them and make them like you, but you genuinely love them, it disarms them completely. And that's what happened. He said, When I loved him, of course it was not at first as a teacher of the truth, for I had entirely despaired of finding that in any church. But I loved him as a friend. And eventually Augustine says that he was spiritually led to the faith by this gentle friendship. Augustine's mother had followed him to Milan and, and uh, she was there with him. And he, this, this critical time while this was happening is when he abandoned his relationship with this girl. And here's what he said. He says, My mistress being torn from my side as an impediment to my marriage, my heart which clave to her was racked and wounded and bleeding. Augustine confessed that he was not a lover of wedlock so much as he was a slave to his own lust, that he procured another concubine to ease his pain of his heart, but he could find no comfort in that. But his emotional wound was never healed, and it began to fester. How many people have I met and found who've been hurt, whose hearts have been broken, who are there in the rubble of their own doing, who are now made open to the gospel of Christ. I've seen it over and over again. Some of you in the room are nodding your head, you know. This week, dealing with a young man who went the, went the wrong way and put his hope and trust, Amy, into this girl, and this girl breaks his heart. His whole family's like, oh no, we're afraid he's going to kill himself. I'm like, he's in the best place he could ever be. They're like, what do you want? I'm like, he's an open wound. I said, that's how trees are grafted. You take a hatchet and you cut the side of a tree and you stick a thing in there. That tree's open and bleeding and it's ready, what, to be grafted in. And here, this, this boy has gone wayward. This is a good way to bring him back. And so here was Augustine. His heart was open and he was just, oh, he's dying. And all along, right in the middle of his pain and suffering, there's a man in his life that says, you know what? I love you. And he takes him and he shows him the way and he, he shows him the way of love. And before Augustine knew it, he was primed and ready for the gospel. In late 386, at the age of 31, he had been inspired by a story. And I thought this was interesting. You know, sometimes the research, you discover things, uh, Steve, that are just like exciting. Do you remember last week, I told you about the very first book that Athanasius wrote? You guys remember this? He wrote a book about this monk he met out in the middle of nowhere. And this monk and the way he lived and how he suffered and he wouldn't eat good food and how he suffered out there and fought the devil. How that this guy inspired Athanasius and he wrote a book and the book's called St. Anthony of the Desert. Remember that? So here we have Augustine. His heart is an open wound. He's being loved by this man. And someone reads the story of St. Anthony of the Desert to him. And he's hearing the story and he's hearing this man's love, his deep abiding love for the rock of God that will not change. When the thing that he had put his love and trust in, this woman had just been pulled out from under him and he realized that his life was being built on sand. He now hears about this rock of God that St. Anthony of the desert through difficulty and famine and, and, and hunger, love God. And he's reading, he's like, oh, I want this love. 
you know, the skill of being able to write the story of a man's life. The Bible says that we are epistles read and known of men. And so I would say, kids, if you want to read good things, read biographies of godly men. Read the story of their lives. And in those things, I know they have changed mine. I know reading about David Livingston brought me spiritually to my knees. And in my heart, it crushed me. As Augustine later told it, his conversion was prompted as he was sitting alone and he was thinking, he heard a voice inside of his heart. He said it sounded like a little child. And all it said was, take up and read. And he felt it was a divine command from God. And so he goes and he opens the Bible. And you know where he opens it, Jeff? He opens the Bible to the book of Romans. And he's reading about the transformation and the transforming power that comes only by the Spirit of God. And he begins to read. Can you imagine this? He's been an ungodly. He's been a heathen. He's been a, a heartbreak to his family. And he opens up. He's not a student of the Scriptures. He opens up the Bible and he begins to read Paul in uh, Romans 12 through 15, where he outlines how the gospel transformed believers and then the believers' lives begin to change. The specific part he read, and Augustine opened the Bible, was Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. He said that we should live lives not in rioting and drunkenness or chambering and wantonness, nor in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. There reading that scripture, he realized that all the things he had built his life on, upon pleasure, upon chambering and riotous and, 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 you know, sexual relations with this woman, that he had built his life on these things and they're gone. And now he has nothing. And he says, no, if you want a life that'll last, if you want something beautiful, put your, build your life on Christ. He later wrote an account of his conversion in confessions. And he says that since he became a, since it, uh, his, his work confessions, as I told you, has become a classic piece of Christian theology that everyone should read. The work is also an outpouring of thanksgiving and penance. Although it is written as an account of his life, confessions talks about the nature of time, causality, free will, and other important philosophical works. Now let me read to you what I read at the beginning and see if it means more to you. Augustine, coming to Christ, says, Late have I loved thee. Years had gone by, and he could have been serving God all along. But late have I loved thee, O Lord, and behold, this whole time you've been with me. I was without, and you were within, and I didn't really seek after you. Thou called and cried and burst into my deafness. You gleamed and glowed and dispelled my blindness. Thou did touch me, and then I burned for thy peace. For yourself you have made me, and restless was my heart until... I found my ease in you. Late have I loved thee, thou beauty ever old and ever new. Isn't that beautiful? The doctrine of salvation by grace and not by works is central to our most holy faith. And we should know it and understand it. This thing that we believe is not just something that makes us different. You know, some people baptize this way or some people baptize that way. At the core of salvation, understanding it is by grace is the core of what we believe. From the gospel's Uh, of the account of the life of Christ to Revelation, the entire New Testament is built in the fact, as John wrote, that our salvation comes not by will of flesh, not by will of man, but by the will of God. Everybody say the will of God. 
As Titus puts it in Titus chapter 3, he said that our salvation is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by the precious blood of Jesus. James tells us that that, uh, it was not our will, but it was whose will that we were begotten of God? It was by the will of God that we have been gotten unto a lively hope. Paul's entire epistle to the Galatians is about this topic. That man cannot save himself. A man cannot achieve righteousness without God's transforming power. Paul told the Romans that it is not of him that wills. It is not is him that runs. But it is of who? Everybody say, it is of God. Because of this, there is no boast, no credit given to man for his salvation, which is God's free gift. It is his unmerited favor. It is all about the goodness of God and nothing about the goodness of man. Paul told the Corinthians this, and you may not see this as a declaration of grace, but listen to it like that now and you'll hear it. Paul told the Corinthians, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it proffereth nothing. Paul was teaching them that it is not the works that we do, but it is the love of Christ that is shed abroad in our hearts. That is the thing that God does. Ambrose was given the pleasure of baptizing Augustine along with Augustine's son in Milan on Easter in April of 387. A year later, Augustine wrote his first book, on holiness and he and his son and a mother had decided that they were going to go back home but his mother died in Italy and then when he got back home his son died this must have been pretty devastating for him so you know what he did he was a person of means he sold everything that he had and he said he was going to live a life before the Lord not owning anything in total service to the Lord And that's what he did the rest of his life. He, back in Hippo, the people saw his godliness and they ordained him a priest there at Hippo. And he began to live as that in a a home. And he preached and and, and tried to convert people and, and lived a life serving others. In 395, he was made the bishop and became... Uh, it says, that he, hence the name Augustine of Hippo, and he gave his property to the church. He remained at this until his death. He wrote uh, at the end of his life, in the last few years of his life, he wrote confession and he wrote the city of God. And he wrote it to console Christians uh, because the Visigoths had invaded Rome. They were an Aryan heresy people in Germany. I'm closing. Augustine worked tirelessly, tirelessly trying to convince the people of Hippo to convert. And though he had left his monastery, he continued to lead a monastic life, living in uh, the Episcopal resident. The Episc- they call it the Episcopal. He, he, lived at the, he lived at the church. Much of Augustine's later life became a man of powerful intellect, stirring order, who took opportunity to defend Christianity. Of his personal life, people said that he, by virtue of the Spirit of God was a man who ate very little. He worked tirelessly. He despised gossip. He shunned the temptations of the flesh and he exercised prudence in financial matters. And the way of his death is kind of interesting to me. 
So the Vandals, you guys ever heard of the Vandals? You guys ever heard of the Vandals and the Visigoths? You ever heard of all these people? I didn't realize that, and Nathaniel was teaching me this recently, that they are people who were Christians who converted to Arianism. I always thought that they were just these bands of heathens, but they were. They were these bands of heretics. And so the Vandals came and they surrounded a hippo and they decided they're going to besiege it and they're going to take the town. And so here he is in the town and they're being besieged and uh, uh, St. Augustine is working, trying to finish some of his works. In fact, he had them take the Psalms of David and put those on his walls. That's what he wanted on the walls of his house, the Psalms. And he's in there and so they're besieging the city and finally they give up and they kind of fake out Hippo that they've left and they come back. And Hippo has kind of let its guard down and they burned the entire city to the ground. But guess what didn't burn? There was only one thing in all the city that didn't burn. Anybody know? The church and all of Augustine's stuff was the only untouched building in the city. The whole city burned, but the church and all the writings in the church, all of his sermons from his life and the works that he wrote were not burned. Isn't God good? He died on August the 28th, AD 430. Shortly after his death, the Vandals lifted the siege. They returned and burned the city. They destroyed everything, but not the church and the library. It was left untouched. Really what God was speaking to me today, you may find that you are in particular need of God's grace. You may find yourself that you've been trusting in your own righteousness. Wherever you are today, we need to be reminded that it is by grace. Say it with me. It is by grace we are saved. And that, not of ourselves. It is what? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. That while we were dead, Lord, dead people can't raise themselves up. But while we were dead in trespasses and sins, you saved us. Lord, that we need to be born again. No man ever yet made himself be born. And Lord, you have said that we must be risen from the dead. We must be born again. Two things we cannot do. And we know that it is by the power of your spirit that these things can happen. And may we take no pride in our own goodness, but may we look to you for holiness and be meek before you. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.